0: Welcome everyone to episode 105 of Pirate Radio Podcast with Robert Morningstar. The Rogues Gallery, we have made it to the back end of today's presentation. The feature portion of the show was an utter and absolute technical train wreck. The Skype connection was just beyond brutal, and we really struggled to have our voices heard. So whether this is all just a coincidence uh, or it's an active human hand involved in trying to disrupt our stream and essentially shut us down, I know we turned off a lot of listeners. We were up to, I believe, around 12 people there at one time joining us as we were putting this week's show together and most left in utter disgust and, and disappointment, so pretty s- sad to see that happen but uh, we do have Robert here now uh, with us uh, for the Rogues Gallery, end of things, what are your thoughts Mr. Morningstar, what, what did we just uh, see happen there?
1: Well, you know, I think that what we experienced was uh, intrusion by artificial intelligence, so I don't think it was um, a human agency uh, otherwise, that that was operating it just happens and it is because we were discussing very controversial things you're in South Korea and I was discussing very very uh important things about the politics uh, across the border and across that other border on the other side of Korea and so I think that um see I've, I've made it known that I am an enemy of artificial intelligence and I think and I can say it, artificial intelligence doesn't like me because I've been putting out the word that it is a very sinister thing, it is not this innocent little web bot that uh, you know facilitates things for us it's tracking everything we do everything that we log on to, it's very bizarre it's bordering on the psychic at times almost as if it can uh, read your thoughts so I talked about a couple of conversations that I had on landline phones. Then walked over to my computer and saw my uh, my Facebook and my Gmail uh, littered with uh, advertising or articles that uh, were dealing with the topics of conversation. Let me give you one really terrible example. This just happened a couple of days ago. A friend of mine uh, has a Macintosh. And she has been interfered with. And she talked to me about her security issues. And I said, I hate Macintosh because you can't work it on your own and you're a slave to their system and you have to go see technicians who rip you off, blah, blah, blah. And I said, you really have to go, uh, you know, that's why I'm into PC. I can work on it myself. I don't need more than McAfee or something like that. So, but you should go and talk to Apple about the security Because she was saying that uh, there was something wrong with her her iCloud. Guess what happens? The next morning, the phone starts ringing at 10 o'clock in the morning. And every 12 minutes, it's a call from Apple Incorporated. And they're telling me, we've discovered that you have an issue with your iCloud and your Apple device. And I told them, I don't have iCloud and I don't use any Apple devices. And that phone kept ringing every 12 minutes for the next 12 hours, and then it also had to do something with AT&T. She was she had a problem with AT&T and uh, intrusive phone calls. And all of a sudden, I start getting calls from AT&T as well, and I don't have anything to do with AT&T. Haven't had anything to do with them in 20 years, you know, since they were such ripoffs. And exploiters of the customer but uh, the phone kept ringing until i got uh, really irate and then google called up with the same the same line everyone said it apple said it atmt said it and then google said it we see you have a trouble with your iCloud and uh, your apple device and uh, we think you should check the security of your apple device i don't have anything apple and so I I really irate. I said, how did you get my telephone number? Why are you calling me? And after I became irate with the final one, the Google one, all the phone calls have stopped. So we're being monitored, folks, and it's it's not a light thing. We are losing something that is guaranteed to us. By the Constitution, no less than freedom of speech and no less than the right to bear arms. And that is privacy. The right to privacy is guaranteed in the Constitution. And all of us are being too lax in protecting our privacy. This is a problem. And artificial intelligence is one of the most intrusive elements into privacy.
0: I could, know, yeah, everything. I couldn't agree more. You're, you're right on the mark there. Absolutely.
1: We have to dismantle it. You all have to watch a movie called Colossus, The Forbin Project. It was made in 1967. It was a warning to all of us. Colossus was the name of a supercomputer developed by the United States in order to pre- prevent nuclear war. Guardian was a supercomputer developed by the Soviet Union programmed to prevent nuclear war. So the two computers driven by artificial intelligence start to cogitate, if that's a proper word for, for or artificial brain, and the two computers decide, you know, we're both programmed to prevent nuclear war, so we should talk to each other. So the computers connect each to each other via telephone lines and start to talk to each other, and they decide on a plan to ensure the prevention of nuclear war. So what they do is they take over the nuclear arsenals of both the United States and the Soviet Union and they start giving the um, the president and the uh, premier of the Soviet Union orders to disarm, to stop the Cold War and that if they don't, they're each going to get nuked. And so they are frantically trying to get the programmers to fix the computers but the computers are way ahead of them the computers send out the cia to kill every computer scientist except dr forbin who invented the colossus because they had to keep him around to change his memory and to tweak him so he protected him but in order to prevent nuclear war and to preserve their power the computers guardian and colossus Order the CIA and the KGB to kill all of the computer programmers who had any knowledge of Guardian or Colossus and to kill every nuclear scientist, nuclear engineer, and designer, manufacturer. And there are these amazing scenes of, uh, you know, American scientists, nuclear scientists lounging by a a swimming pool, drinking daiquiris and uh, enjoying the day. And a helicopter comes down, lands with a bunch of CIA guys, and they just jump out of the helicopter and just gun down everybody at the swimming pool because what has happened is that Colossus and Guardian threatened both the Soviet Union and the United States, and they told them, "If you don't believe us, we're going to nuke one of your cities." And so they don't believe them, so they do launch, and the Americans' uh, city that is hit is uh, Houston Texas and the si- Minsk I believe in the Soviet Union is hit and they're destroyed and so the media uh, comes out and says that there was a nuclear accident in the Soviet Union that destroyed that city and that an asteroid had uh, come in to earth and struck this city of Houston as the cover stories and then at the end it's uh, they're left with colossus in charge of the whole world colossus and guardian and dr forbin trying to figure out a plan how to sabotage the computer but he's not there yet so that warning came in 1967 this warning is coming to you in 2018 we have to do away with artificial intelligence it is the greatest threat to our privacy and our freedoms that the world has yet to realize
0: Absolutely. Uh, once again, I myself could not agree more. It's something that I'm endlessly stupefied to see the number of people who just so blindly go along in purchasing the typical consumer type mentality. These so-called smartphones and smart technology, They're not mm-hmm. able to see or grasp The fact that they're being programmed to accept the smart label, so that when they purchase it, that they feel smart, (laughs) as if with with completely turning a blind eye to the fact that how it is so intrusive, as you point out, and that they're really they're handing over their uh, right to privacy in a major way. But let me just, uh, there's a couple of things you kind of hit on there that uh, warrant revisitation, I guess, or at least uh, just mentioning wiping out this entire class of people who were in the know, so to speak, very similar to what we seem to uh, see at the moment with respect to naturopaths and alternative uh, healers. Uh, it's quite the yes. bizarre the magnitude, the b- body count there, mind-boggling to say the least. Uh, but on top of that, let me just ask you, uh, and you can address these in whatever fashion you, you like, what the Archons and uh, Gnosticism uh, which I think those two kind of go hand in hand But and on top of that, the Demiurge uh, with respect to artificial intelligence is there a connection there?
1: I do believe so, I do believe so the, the Demiurge is a disincarnate intelligence, you know carnate means meaty it wants to be inside us and I do believe that artificial intelligence and the archons i I am a gnostic. I have had the experience i've seen i've seen the archons that's why i I have no qualms about saying i I am illuminated, but i'm not an illuminati i'm not one of that. My illumination came to me by my own work, not by anybody else, by my own quest, and that spurs me to encourage people to find their own souls, because that's what it really means. When you find your soul, you found yourself. When you found your soul and found yourself, you find your spirit and you have found God. And that is a certainty that I have. When I walk into church, God, God walks in with me. And when I walk out of church, God walks out with me. And the same thing goes with walking into the subway or walking into or out of any any place God is not only my co-pilot, God is my navigator. And that is an absolute certainty that I have. And that's because of this experience that I had back in 1974. So I encourage people to pursue their soul powers and find your own identity. You are not who you've been told you are. You are not what you do. You are not the name that your parents laid on you. You have a name on your soul that is yours and no one else's, and it's secret. It's between you and God. God knows it, but you have to look for it to find your own identity. Most people are suffering today mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and physically because they don't know who they really are. They are pretending to be someone else. They are conforming to be someone else, uh, that has been defined, their roles, identities are not, not their own, they're not your own. You are more than your body, and it's your responsibility to find out who you really are. I found it through Tai Chi, through yoga, through meditation, through dancing, gymnastics, every possible thing I could study. Uh, In the quest to find the form, in the earlier part of the program where it broke up, I talked about Tai Chi and the quest for the form. The form is to arrive, to find the form is to arrive at the blueprint for the human being to find out what God really wanted you to look like. And the problem is you don't look like what God wanted you to look like. You look like what fashion wants you to look like, what the government wants you to look like what um, the current fad wants you to look like, and you're conforming to it. And a lot of your uh, sadness, a lot of your injuries, and a lot of your illnesses are coming from a distorted self-image. Find your true self-image. Put that self-image into the core of your being and think about that self-image and you will see the molecules in your body start to reaggregate into your true self-image. That's all I can tell you. It's really quite profound. As I said, in Taiji, we believe the shape of the mind imposes the shape of the body. The body is a magnetic bottle. And the electrical activity of your brain and the identity, the way you think you look inside yourself, your subconscious self-image, that's what I call it, your subconscious self-image, If your subconscious self-image becomes distorted, your body will follow suit. And a body that's not in balance, that's misaligned, is more apt or more prone to have accidents, injuries, and illness. So that's the uh, best advice that I can give you is to find your center. And your center is not in your head. Your center is way down uh, deep in your body. So when I say, I often talk about me, myself, and I, and when I say me, I touch my forehead. When I say myself, I touch my heart. And when I say I, I put my thumb in my belly button and lay my palm across my abdomen, which is where the Hara is, you know, in the Harakiri. The Qi lives in the Dantian. In Chinese, the Dantian is this uh, fallow field for the planting of the carnation. That's what the dan is. It's, it's a flower. Symbolizes the expansion of consciousness. The Japanese call it hara. So when the suicide, uh, when suicide is demanded in Japanese culture, they do hara They kill the hara. And they kill the center to make sure you go, you know? So finding your center comes first. And that comes with dropping your identity from your head to your heart and then deeper into your gut and start listening to your gut brain. The gut brain is older than the, than the head brain and the drives that come from the gut are drives and instincts that drive us to what will be and secure our survival. But when you, you listen too much to the head and the noise in the head And the disjointed thinking that has been programmed in so many modern heads, especially the young people. It is very dangerous to your well-being. It is a distraction from essential self. Essential self resides deep in the gut. And I have this voice that I often refer to on the radio. I tell people, I call it the voice of my angel. And the voice of my ego talks from my head. The voice of my soul speaks from my heart. But the voice of my angel comes from my guts, and often in critical situations, that voice has spoken to me upward from below, and I listen, and I have reacted to that voice and followed its advice. And that's why I'm here on the verge of 70 years of age, and uh, as I like to say, still kicking, and still kicking in the sense of Bruce Lee kicking. Poor Bruce, you know, he strained himself too much. And uh, I'm happy to say I've survived for longer than twice as long as Bruce Lee lived. Because I learned lessons from him, too. The lesson I learned from Bruce Lee at the end, I'm still a great admirer of his art, his skill. But the lesson I learned from Bruce Lee is that uh, an overinflated ego will kill you faster than any enemy will do. Bruce Lee's ego was what killed him. And there are many, many reasons for that. He was targeted, he was assassinated, but it was his ego that drew the hatred, the hostility, and the revenge that was directed at him. He was, um, what's that saying in network? He was tampering with cosmic forces. And he he died too young, 33. I still remember the day Bruce Lee died. I could not believe it. I could not believe the stories. And then I learned the real stories. And that were they were there. He was disrespectful of the traditional masters of Kung Fu. And he humiliated some of them, many of them. He humiliated with some of them on Hong Kong television. And as a result, he, he was targeted. The other reason Bruce Lee was uh, disliked by the powers that were in China, in Chinese culture, in Chinese uh, martial arts, was that Bruce Lee was not fully Chinese. They looked upon him as a half-breed because Bruce Lee had a a German grandparent. So he was not considered pure-blooded Chinese. And he didn't want to be because he wasn't. He was an American. He came to America. He became an American. And he emphasized that his name, Bruce Lee, was not spelled L-I as is traditional In uh, the uh, romanization of Chinese names, L-I, it means plum, by the way, his family name, but he insisted on spelling it L-E-E, like Robert E. Lee. And so those are the problems that are people that are caught, you know, in uh, cultural crossfires. He was a great man. He's an icon. He's a demigod. In China now, you know, if you look around in Chinatowns, whether it's Hong Kong, New York, San Francisco, you see statues of Bruce Lee in porcelain and uh, alongside statues of uh, mythical people, you know, like the Yellow Emperor or uh, the hero Yu. The Chinese hero Yu saved China. He was, I believe he was the fifth emperor of China and he saved China from the five sons. China became oppressed by five suns that started shining in the sky, and they were scorching the land and causing drought. And somehow, this hero, Yu, spelled Y-Yu, the hero Yu, developed a weapon. He developed a bow and arrow, and he shot four of the suns out of the sky, and so that only the original sun was left, and he saved China. That's quite a legend there, right? It sounds like you're a host to me, man.
0: I'm sorry? Come again?
1: I said, it sounds like UFOs to me. Five suns shining in the Chinese sky, scorching the land, causing famine, and a hero arises and develops a, a bow that he shoots down four of the suns to save China. That's the legend.
0: Well, we find it time and again, don't we? This, uh, this intervention from on high. The skies yeah. are always, it seems, where God is located. People, you ask them more often mm-hmm. than not, where is God? And they point upwards, although really, the, of course, as probably you and I are aware, it's it's as Jesus said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is within you, the inner space, not just the outer space. And uh, that's kind of along the lines of the Gnostic axiom, also what you find in Buddhism too, the concept uh-huh. of uh, as above, so below. We are essentially the microcosm of what yeah. is the yeah. larger... Universal uh, cosmic drama.
1: Yeah, your very very eloquent uh, quotations there, you know, as above, so below. But Jesus said something that was remarkable that reveals to me his true identity. He was talking to the Pharisees and he said, I am from above, you are from below. I worship the Father, and if you love the Father, you would love me, but you don't. You worship your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do, for he was a murderer and a liar from the beginning. And when he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own. What's well, really profound. It's really profound. The
0: There's devil. a lot that uh, Jesus had to offer, which was quite profound. I am of the position and belief that uh, he was very similar to the Buddha, the problem was, with them both being highly enlightened individuals, of course, that with the Christian end of things, the Jesus gold got really muddied, if you look at it in the sense of dropping gold into a glass of water. Uh, Buddha and Jesus, both very clear water, but then you get the politics mm-hmm. with Jesus, and it gets all muddied, and you can't quite see what's really going on. And that's where, I guess, you come across things like the more uh, esoteric teachings, which are only for a select few, the more kind of secretive teachings and traditions. Um, because some people just don't get it. That's why you had to speak in parables, perhaps.
1: Well, I believe that Jesus traveled extensively uh, through India and to China. And I believe that he studied in India with the, uh, the masters of yoga and that he went to China and that he learned about the Tao, which means the way. And so when I when I hear Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I understand that it's perfect, perfect Taoism, to say I am the way, say I am the Tao, I yeah. am the truth,
0: the logos, and I, I guess, in the word, the, 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 the word, word is, of God is the logos, and which many true. scholars and academics and observers uh, compared to the Tao. In Buddhism, it's the Dharma. So mm-hmm. uh, there you go. Uh, but the, lo-
1: uh, mm-hmm. the logos is the Christ, and this is something that people need to understand. The Logos is the Christ. So I make a distinction between the Cosmic Christ and Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the incarnation of the Logos. He's the incarnation of the Cosmic Christ. But it's not exclusive to Jesus. Jesus came to wake us all up to the knowledge that the way is within us, the truth is within us, and the life is with is within us. And the life that is within us is the Christ. Do you understand? The life itself, livingness, the thing that is in your body now and in my body now, and making it animate and hopefully intelligent <laughs> enough to communicate this idea, that life will leave my body. It's not my ego. Robert is talking to you, but something is animating Robert. And that is life. That is the Christ. This is the realization that that I was uh, given. Because I have been in the Godhead. I have been to the beginning of time. I have been from the beginning of time. Right now I'm wearing a mortal coil of very delicious meat. I'm incarnate. But there's something greater within me that's, that's coming out. And I've been cultivating it and seeking it and developing it and communicating it. We are all sons of God. That is what Jesus said. And if you study Jung, uh, C.G. Jung, he is the most profound psychologist of the 20th century and more important than Einstein. And if you read his last book, Mysterium Conjunctionis, it's all about alchemy. And it's a reconciliation of Western alchemy, chemistry, Western alchemy, and Eastern Chinese and Hindu alchemy and Christian alchemy. And ultimately, what Jung says is the goal of life is to give birth to the second atom. So human beings are essentially eggs that have not hatched. And we will hatch when we die. Now, if you prepare yourself well, correctly for a good death and by that I mean a death that has no fear a death that has no shame or uh, qualms of conscience then you will be dying a happy death if you fulfill your mission on this planet and you all do have a mission you're not here you know to flip burgers at uh, Big Mac, you know, we have a greater purpose. That's an incidental thing, not that I put it down. That's just a stepping stone, whatever your job is, it's a stepping stone to your self-realization. So you have to work hard to succeed. And what do I mean by success? I mean, providing for your fundamental needs, you know, food, shelter, security, And work enough to have some leisure time to develop yourself. If you are working 24-7, you are a slave. If you have no time to develop your higher self, the higher elements of your soul, then you are a prisoner. And you're a prisoner of a material universe, a material matrix that has been... You are incarcerated. Science has incarcerated human beings in a material universe. But we can break out. We don't have to conform to that view, that reality is only that which I can see, touch, or uh, deal with, with the five senses. The five senses are limited. The sixth sense, the seventh sense, the higher faculties that are dormant in every human being and spirit will awaken them. The other thing is that Jesus never said to worship him. Jesus never asked anybody to worship him. He said, do this in remembrance of me, which is not the same thing. He also said, worship only the Holy Spirit. So this spirit is called Shen. Shen Ling, actually, in Chinese. And in Taoism and Tai Chi, we talk about Shen Ling. And the individual Shen, the individual spirit. So the course, what is the course? The course is to get out of your body through the right path. And the right path is to navigate the soul out of the body, through the spinal column, up through the behind the heart, through the back of the neck, into the brain, and out of that hole, you know, when you're born as a baby, there's a little uh, open spot, a little soft spot on on top of the head. Well, that is the crown. And through that, the spirit can rise and uh, reincarnate, if it wishes to, or go on to heaven, or if you're a Buddhist, nirvana. But it does go on. I have almost died. Couple of times in my life, near death experiences, and once, more than once. Once I was really leaving. I mean, I was going. I was standing, and I was uh, suffering from an injury that I had uh, received in in a kung fu fight. And my body went into tremors. And I was standing in a room with two ladies and a three year old girl, the daughter of one of the ladies. And I started to go into tremors. All of the blood left the top of my body, my face turned pale, I felt all the blood drop in my body into my lower body. And as that was happening, simultaneously, I felt a magnetism rising through my spine, the magnetism went up and out of my spine and out of my head. And then it was higher than my head, and it enveloped my body. And I could feel that I was that magnetism and that Robert's body including Robert's very long hair, like uh, the Chinese Kung Fu guys with the braid and everything in, in, down the back. Robert's hair was inside this magnetic field and it was leaving. Here's what happened visually. When my soul started to leave my body, I was looking at my friend in the room. She looked at me. She knew I was in trouble. I was having some kind of a an event. Uh, my heart was palpitating my blood left the upper part of my body all my muscles went into tremors my facial muscles were shaking and everything and i felt like i if i didn't control myself i was going to go completely pass out held on to consciousness i bent my legs bent my knees i crouched i started doing tai chi i got my balance and what i saw was reality was fractured there was a crisscross of lines, white lines, white threads, like silk, like a spider web. But the spider web was made of light. And then the spider web's individual threads began to grow thicker and denser. And it, it started to form an overlay over reality. And it was a light that was supernal. It was The first lights were white. The lines were white. But when they started to expand and reveal what was behind them, there was the most supernal blue light that anyone could ever imagine. And I was struck by it. I was almost drawn into it. But I realized that to be drawn into it, I would be, I would have to die. And I looked and I saw the little girl there and I saw her mother and my friend looking at me and our eyes, our our eyes met. And I just kept looking at her eyes and held on to her eyes. And I said, if I let go of her eyes, I'm going to die. And then I uttered a prayer. And I said, God, I'm not afraid to die. This is beautiful. But these people would not understand it. And God, I don't want to die in front of this three-year-old girl. It would be a trauma. I'll drop my body here, and they'll scream, and they'll go crazy, and it'll be a horror. And this girl, this little baby, three years old, will be traumatized by this. God, don't let me die in front of this little girl. And when I uttered that prayer, the magnetism started to fall back into my body. It went down through my head, down my back. And as the magnetism went down my back, the blood came back up into my body. And my friend was in shock. She said, I saw that. I saw what was happening to you. I said, I know. I held on to you. And um, so that is a, a near-death experience. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone describe that that gateway, that portal, that window between the worlds. But I have seen it. I've seen the light. Yeah. and it's beautiful. And it's wonderful. And but I'm in. I'm in no hurry to get there. You know, I have that certainty. That is a wonderful thing. And the other thing I have to say is that my gratitude. I thank God and I thank my teacher, Professor Cheng Man Ching, Grandmaster of Yang Family Tai Chi Chuan, who died in Taiwan in. March of 1975, and who visited me in New York, three days after his body grew cold in a hospital in Taiwan. And he approached me and I became scared and frightened. And I didn't know who it was, what it was, and who, how could they get into my house? And they approached me and as I became full of concern got into a self-defense mode i felt paralyzed first of all uh, i was paralyzed and i but i was able to clench my fist as if to fight and then this voice said don't be afraid robert nothing can harm you and the way he said it don't be afraid robert nothing can harm you he meant nothing in the world can harm me and i took it to heart and i went through it and he walked over to me and he touched me on my forehead with his with a very light touch, right in my what you would call your third eye. And I was infused with so much love that I couldn't comprehend it. I thought I was experiencing Christ, Jesus Christ, because I didn't know my teacher had died. And so I had this uh, transcendental experience. And then when I wrestled with trying to change my position so I could see the face of the person, because I could only see from the ground up to the chest and shoulders and the hand, a golden hand touching me, When I tried uh, to change my position so I could see the face, he stepped away and walked away into the other room, and I saw the whole body, and then I saw saw the form. I saw the form that was familiar to me. I saw the back of a white head. I saw a long black gown like a professor's gown, and then I looked at the floor, and I was shocked because as he walked away, his feet appeared not to touch the ground as if he, he, he were walking on air. And I, my eyes widened at that. And then I looked up and saw the whole body and the body disappeared from the upper right shoulder to the lower left leg, it dissolved. And you'll understand perfectly what I said to myself. I said to myself, Oh my God, it's just like the teleportation machine in Star Trek. That effect is exactly how this spirit, my teacher's ghost disappeared. But I didn't know for an hour yet. I thought that I had had an experience with the cosmic Christ. And one hour later, a friend knocked on my door with a very long face on his face. His name is Kenny, a very happy-go-lucky rock and roller. And he was so sad, totally out of his character. And I said, Kenny, what's up? And he said, Robert, I have some bad news for you. And I said, what? could be so bad as to make his face look like that and i said what is it he said professor cheng is dead he died three days ago in china mr khan just read it in the chinese newspaper and jaffe at that moment i'll tell you there was an atomic bomb that detonated in my brain and i saw a light a flash of light and a mushroom cloud that was going and spreading across both sides of my brain and i said i am never going to be the same man that I was one hour ago. This has changed my life forever. And I saw my life in a flash. And I saw everything, everything that I had ever done, every good, bad thing, every turning point in my life. And it would remain so the real turning point in my life came which with an utterly horrific experience, which was tied into this one. This one was to prepare me for the next one. But he disappeared, and I Realized that Tai Chi Grandmaster had loved me so much that he had come back from the other side of the grave to say goodbye to me in this way and to say to me, I'm blessing you. And he also gave me knowledge. This is something that happens in mystic- mysticism, mystical experiences. You will be downloaded with knowledge and you will know things that you never learned. But the knowledge is resident, it's in you and it's a certainty. And what it produced in me. Was a drive to find the proofs for the knowledge that I already had received. Because all of you have it. You have been deceived into who you are, or who you think you are, and who you think you're supposed to be. You're just supposed to be yourself. You're not supposed to be what your mother wants you to be, or your father wants you to be, or what society desires you to be. You're supposed to be yourself. And defining yourself requires the courage of individuality. You have to have the courage to be yourself.
0: In the Buddhist tradition, I believe it's referred to as the lion's roar. Heavy emphasis, of course, on authenticity. And as you say, very important to go within ourselves. Stop looking for the answers somewhere out there in the world. Uh, The monkey see, monkey do sort of Mentality is—you end up falling into the ranks and becoming just one of the masses, really faceless, soulless, very uh, schooled and heavily. You know, we're all programmed, of course. So it's a question once again of rebooting your formatting system and starting from scratch.
1: That's a good. It's just a, a good analogy. We accrue a lot of junk, junk thoughts and junk behavior patterns. And some of the worst behavior patterns, they infiltrate us through the media. And part of it is the natural aptitude for human beings for mimicry, mimicking funny behavior or bad behavior. I gave you my three heroes in growing up, Flash Gordon, Robin Hood and Batman. That's only three of them. There are many more and they were all positive. But if you attach yourself to an anti hero or an unhero, you're going to be in trouble because they lead you down the wrong path. Violence is not a necessary attribute of a hero. Too many people rely on violence to defend themselves, they uh, also yeah. rely on violence to define themselves. That's another thing. Absolutely. hulk hogan is an example of someone who defined himself by violence and many others
0: look at the way the uh, mixed martial arts phenomenon seems to be uh really taking off heavily promoted by the powers that be obviously mm-hmm. as well but uh uh, yeah, I mean, myself, I'm fine with boxing. <laughs> you know, it's a, a sportsmanlike and uh, with the gloves and so forth. But this mixed martial arts, for me, it's a, it's taking a, things a step too far. It's bare knuckles. Uh, you might as well just take it out into the street, frankly. Very barbaric. Uh, yeah, but an unfortunate. Sure. Although I guess, I get, if you have willing participants that enter into the ring, that's their decision to, uh, you know, that's how they want to, conduct themselves but it's unfortunate though when it does go back to this mimicry uh, business or issue that you're referring to because you got young people that are watching this sometimes these fighters become their heroes, people they really look up to rather than maybe uh, steering off in a different direction or choosing a different path or course where it's more of an emphasis on uh, the intellectual or spiritual role models or even just a balance of the two going back to Plato for example, where you've got the gymnastics and warrior-like tendencies mixed and balanced with the uh, more intellectual and philosophical pursuits, if you catch what I'm getting at there.
1: Sure. My teacher was called the master of the five excellences because in addition to being a grandmaster of Tai Chi, he was a doctor of herbal medicine, he was a painter, he was a calligrapher, and he was a poet. Those are the five The five, um, disciplines of a real scholar, master of the five excellences being martial arts, poetry, painting, medicine, and calligraphy. So those, those are role models that we should try to emulate positive ones. Now here's, let me just uh, jump aside. You were saying something, uh, and I was saying something about, you know, purpose in life. Do you know that we have three civic obligations? come to us from the constitution you know we have been given a right to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness but we have an obligation to stay alive we have an obligation to fight for our liberty or preserve our liberty and we have an obligation to be happy people are not pursuing their happiness they're pursuing somebody else's happiness they're volunteering to make somebody else rich to make somebody else happy they're not concentrating on their own happiness. And I think that this is something that people have to wake up to. Who are you living for? Of course, I find happiness in the happiness of others. But that's another thing. You know, I, I am always uh, in New York City. I'm accosted regularly, not in a bad way, by quote-unquote volunteers. Young kids, you know. 13 to 18, altruistic, need a cause, and they get out there and they start trying to collect donations for Planned Parenthood, Greenpeace, the Sierra Fund, all of these organizations. I tell them, listen, get a job, do something that you're being paid for, don't work for someone else, find your own cause, make your own cause, work for yourself. One of the things that really irked me about Obama was the perversion of language. I recognized Obama as a communist plant from the time he opened his mouth at the convention. And one of the things that was most outrageous about Obama was the manipulation of language, neurolinguistic manipulation of language, and the outrageous contradictions that would come out of his mouth. You know, he, say, he said one day, well, I'm thinking of passing a law for mandatory volunteerism. <laughs> <laughs> I said, what? Mandatory volunteerism. Yeah, she said, oh, every, every person is going to have to volunteer for a year to do something. What sort
0: of Man- Orwellian gobbledygook is that?
1: Well, can, you give, can I give you my, my uh, synonym for mandatory volunteerism? That's called slavery. Yeah. You know? Well, he was a manipulator. He was a four-tongue snake. And I'm very happy every day. Every day, I, uh, I'm very happy that his era is over. And I say to people, you know, looking back on my life, as I said, we, we were all born for a purpose. I looked for my purpose, and I, th- I asked God, God, why did you give me so many gifts? You know, you gave me a good brain. I have great memory. I retain things. I see clearly, I use good logic. Why did you give me all these things? And then at the age of 42, I found out it was to solve the mysteries of the JFK assassination. And uh, that included exposing the doctoring of the Zapruder film, which turned all Americans and the whole world into a bunch of munchkins, looking at an optical illusion and taking it to be real. And then the more horrifying parts of the doctoring Literally, the doctoring of the medical evidence, which involved the use of a a double, a second body. J.D. Tippett.
0: That's uh, J.D.
1: Tippett. That's that's it. And then, so I feel, you know, I said to you earlier that I got my degree in psychology, and healing is the purpose of of my my course. Healing myself first, and then helping other people heal. Heal the mind, you heal the body. I felt that I was born for a very special reason to do things, something that nobody else could have done and I honestly say I'll take credit for it because nobody else did it. 30 years people were befuddled, bemused, confused, deceived by the Zapruder film and I fortunately at Fordham University studied psychology and I had a wonderful teacher who taught me Gestalt psychology which is the, the psychology of human perception, how a human being forms an idea. This was a very, very unique field of psychology. So when I, I started uh, researching the Zapruder film, I started finding splice marks and cuts and jumps and uh, anachronisms and things that were out of sync with space-time. And I realized that the cuts and the disjunctions were very carefully hidden. The splices were not ordinary splices. They weren't just spliced, uh, as they call a guillotine, guillotine splice between the frame, and it wasn't a splice right through the middle of the frame. I kept coming across frames that had a, an unusual proportion. For example, the top part would be about almost one-third of the frame, and the bottom part of the frame, two-thirds, 60% of the frame. And I kept coming across these unique splice marks, where which were not just cut in half. And slowly... I said to myself, what is this? So I froze the frames on my monitor. And then I took a ruler and I measured the frames and the proportions. And when I measured the relative sizes, ratios of the segments that had been artificially inserted, I found the proportion was 1 to 1.618, 1 to 1.619. And that's the golden mean. That's the golden ratio. That is... The organic pattern of nature, the way nature unfolds, the way nature creates, the way nature uh, veins a leaf, the way it leaves a tree, the way whirlpools and spirals form, this is the golden mean. And so these diabolical, and I really do mean diabolical, Scientists, psychologists working for the CIA applied this factor of organic growth, natural proportion to the Zapruder film so that they could cut out feet of film, at least 10 feet of film have been cut out of the Zapruder film, and yet join it in such a way as to make it almost transparent, but not quite fully transparent. It's a film that leaves the viewer in a state of cognitive dissonance. It leaves you confused. You know you saw it, but you really can't explain what you saw or how it happened. And the reason is that, for example, in the kill shot at Z313, at Z313, in the span of about three seconds, three seconds of time, over a hundred and 40 frames have been removed that is to say that what you should see in the Zapruder film at the kill shot was be first President Kennedy's head explode with a white cloud appearing over the entire limousine and the blood and the brain going up into the air stopping then falling back down and raining down on the car Then you should have seen another bullet enter the open hole in the right front of the head and blow out the back of the head, which flew out so fast that Jackie actually reacted to try to catch it in the air. Did anybody ever flip a a baseball at you really fast and unexpected and you react to catch it? Well, Jackie Kennedy was like a cat. She tried to catch that piece of brain in the air. And when she saw it on the back, she turned on her right hip. She turned on her left knee. She crawled out like a cat. She grabbed it. The car accelerated. And she was going to roll off the back of the car to her death. And that's when Clint Hill came aboard. And he saw what, he, what she was going for. The piece of skull and brain that was on the trunk of the car. And he saw that she was going for it. And she wasn't going to give up. So what he did is he flipped it back to her. He flipped it with his hand, he pushed it back to her, she grabbed it, the car accelerated, she fell on her face, he grabbed her by the shoulder, he shoved her back like a duffel bag into the car. But all of that is gone. Something else is gone. When Jack Kennedy was hit in the back and in the throat, first shot was in the back, this was by the sign. He stood up in the car and he said, oh my god, I've been shot. And then he fell back into the seat and fell through. That has been removed from the Zapruder film because Zapruder testified to the Warren Commission that he saw President Kennedy's head pop up behind the sign, and Al Inspector, one of the uh, Warren Commission counsel, said to him, "No, that's not possible. The president was behind the sign; you couldn't have seen him." And he said, "No, I saw his head pop up behind the sign." He says, "How can you? How can you say?" He said, "I saw his red hair. His red head popped up above above the car." Now. They said the same similar, a similar thing to the Secret Service driver who said, I heard a shot and I heard the president say, Oh my God, I've been shot. And the counsel, the Foreign Commission counsel, the Inspector says to him, No, you couldn't have heard him say that because he was shot through the throat, first shot, and he couldn't have said anything. And the Secret Servicemen, both of them, Kellerman and Greer, said, No, we heard him, I heard him say, Oh my God, I've been shot. And he goes back, You couldn't have heard, he was shot in the throat. And then the second Secret Service says, Today. he said That's what he said. And then the council turns on them and he said, how can you be so sure? And the secret serviceman said, because he said it in a Boston accent. And that shut up the Warren Commissioner. And they went on to another thing. All the people who saw things were told they didn't see things. And the things that they saw were in the Zapruder film. And so... The president standing up in the car and falling back into the car as if he was playing along with a gag or something. That was Mr. William Newman, whom I met personally. On the 33rd anniversary of the assassination, I met the man who was the closest person to the president who was not inside the car, Mr. William Newman. And I had a long conversation with him, and I explained to him that what he had seen was really true, even though it wasn't shown in the Zapruder film. And Mr. Newman was made a fool of by Vincent Bugliosi, who regurgitated the Warren Commission report in his book on the Kennedy assassination. And what he did was, Mr. Newman was uh, at the trial of Lee Harvey Oswald. It was a TV trial with Jerry Spence, the defense lawyer, and uh, Vincent Bugliosi, the man who got Manson, as the prosecutor. So Spence gets Mr. Newman... He tells his story exactly word for word, as he told it on November 22nd, 1963, as I saw it on CBS News several times that day, that night, that weekend. So Bugliosi walks up and he says, oh, so you say you saw a president standing up in the car? He says, yeah, I saw him stand up and we didn't know. We heard a sound and we thought he was playing along with a gag or something. He stood up and did something. Then he sat back down Then he says... Mr. Newman, I'm going to show you a copy of the Zapruder film. And they run the Zapruder film, and Mr. Newman's watching, and he says, "Um, Mr. Newman, you can see that the car never stopped, and as you can see, the president never stood up. And Mr. Newman is left speechless, because he knew what he saw. He told the truth. I know what he saw. And uh, so he was discredited. So I go up to Mr. Newman. I said, Mr. Newman, and I have this on video. I said, Mr. Newman, I want you to tell me your story. I heard you that night. I heard you that afternoon. I know that everything you said was true. And I want you to forget everything that anybody has ever said to you other than what you saw and you and your wife saw. Please tell it to me. Then he went right through it. And then I said to him, Mr. Newman, I have something to tell you. And then I told him what I have just said. Told you. The Zapruder film was doctored. Ten feet of it were cut. The scene where he stood up in the car was deleted. The film is accelerated so much that the car looks like it's going 30, 35 miles an hour when the car only went at 11.4 at its fastest. Before it took off, before the president was dead, it crawled down the street. It stopped by the sign. It crawled away from the sign. It stopped at the grassy knoll. That's where the triangulation or quadrangulation of fire occurred. And when the first shot hit, the second shot hit President Kennedy in the throat, he started making horrible gurgling sounds. And Jackie slid over to him and put her arm around him and said, Jack, what's wrong? She couldn't see. Uh, the wound you know was under the tie, but he was making these gasping uh, gurgling noise, horrible gurgling noises. those were her words and then he was shot again, and Jackie actually had put her arms around him, and when he was shot with the headshot, she tightened her grip around him and she looked around as if to see who's hurting my husband and then that 2nd the second headshot that went through the open hole in the front and went out through the back, she saw that and her arm reacted to grab it. Jaffe, I'm going to tell you something. There was only one hero in Dealey Plaza that day, November 22nd, 1963. And that hero was Jack, Glenn Kennedy. Clint Hill was not a hero. The Secret Service was not a hero. Tippett was not a hero. And I'm happy to say that in the last batch of documents that were released an fbi memo came out and said that a week before the assassination an fbi informant a reliable fbi informant had told them there had been a meeting in jack ruby's carousel club that had been attended by jack ruby lee harvey oswald Officer J.D. Tippett, who was the real assassin, who was the actual assassin of President Kennedy. The
0: badge man. He's the badge man. The badge
1: And the head of the Dallas branch of the John Birch Society.
0: Well, so, hold, hold it. You're saying this came out in the, with the recent so-called Trump dump, the JFK files that this somehow yeah, came to... Yeah.
1: Wow.
0: That. Yeah,
1: the, the last one. Not this one. Not yesterday. Not the day before yesterday. This is back in October. <laughs> Excuse the first, me. That's the first I've
0: heard of that. So we actually did a show on the JFK files just a couple of months ago. One of the things, uh, along with everything that you're laying out here, that came to the surface, as I recall, was the fact that, as many have suspected for quite some time now, Oswald never shot J.D. Tippett. Did it not say in the in the right. JFK files that was actually Jack Ruby?
1: Tippett was shot by two men, one of whom was Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby had apparently driven to the Tippett death scene with a certain Dallas police captain, Westbrook. Because Jack Ruby was in Dealey Plaza, Jack Ruby was at the Tippett murder scene, and Jack Ruby was in the theater. Listen, I produced a YouTube video last November on the anniversary. On November 22nd, I released it. It's on YouTube. It's called warning the ultimate secrets of the jfk assassination part one the key word is warning warning the ultimate secrets of the jfk assassination part one and everything i've told you so far is in there i'm going to come out in greater detail with part two in part two i plan to reconstruct as a pruder film as it should have looked because i came across certain missing frames In a very rare version, there are many versions of the Zapruder film, you know, and none of them are real. All of them have parts and some of them were works in progress that were not released, but someone found one and released it to me and I was able to recognize in it there were frames that are not in the regular Zapruder film and those are the frames, that one frame where Jackie's arm tries to catch the the piece of head or brain in the air. The scene where Jackie puts both her arms around him and hugs him and looks around. I mean, these are flashes. They're 30th of a second, you know, or I should say, if you believe the Zapruder film uh, speed that the FBI gave you, it's one 18th of a second. If you believe Zapruder, who said he shot the film in slow motion, that's another funny part of the War Commission hearing. Zapruder starts to testify and they ask him what speed he shot the film. And he's telling him I shot at 48 frames per second. And the guy said, no, no, it was 18 frames per second. He said, no, it's 48. He says, no, 18. The FBI says it was 18. And he says, no, I shot it at 48. And it gets confusing, except unless you know, like I do, that Zapruder's film could shoot single frame. If you squeeze the trigger lightly, it shot 18 frames per second. And if you squeezed it really firmly, it shot slow motion, 48 frames per second. And so he's telling the Warren Commission lawyers, no, no, it's not 18 frames per second. It's 48 frames per second. And he realized, oh, my God, he's telling me he shot the movie in slow motion. So he just bails out of that conversation and goes on to another topic, which is he tries to get Zapruder to identify himself in a picture of himself in Dealey Plaza. And Zapruder couldn't point himself out. He was saying he was someplace else other than where uh, the official uh, report says he was on top of the abutment. He couldn't find himself on top of the abutment. There's a lot of fishy business around Zapruder. Zapruder was a right-wing fanatic. He was uh, a member of the white Russian community, who were who the handlers of Oswald down there.
0: George de Shield was part of that uh, whole circle of intrigue as well, from what I understand. Right.
1: Was Zapruder not
0: a 32nd degree Freemason on top of things?
1: I heard he was. I heard that he was 33. I heard 32 before, but somebody said to me 33. So anyway, yes, those all things, all those things are true. But the strange thing about Zapruder is that he was called a few minutes or half an hour before the motorcade arrived. And the secretary answered the phone and she said the voice told her to tell Abe to get his camera and get down to Dealey Plaza because the president's motorcade is coming around. And she said that it sounded like Jack Ruby. So Jack Ruby was really the linchpin, the main gear of the mechanics of Dealey Plaza. See, I divide the operation into the planners and the mechanics, you know, the brains and the brawn. And Jack Ruby was, he called Zapruder to go and get his camera to shoot the film. He delivered rifles and Secret Service documents, fake documents, to the assassins at 1130 at Dealey Plaza. James Files, you know the con? the Sure, conduct? yeah. James Files says, Jack Ruby was in Dealey Plaza. He was up the block up there by the sign. And I have found a very rare photograph that was not released for... I would say, 48 years or so. And it's a picture of the sign, the area near the sign, 20 seconds after the president's been shot. And it was a very dark photograph. And through computer enhancement, I was able to enlighten it. And what I saw was people running around. The ladies that had been standing by the sign that are seen in the Zapruder film are all distraught. And in the foreground is a man trying to heal his dog. Do you understand what I'm saying?
0: Not exactly. This, not know what. Yeah. Maybe you have to lay it out
1: in, in this clear English. The front of the sign. The front of the sign is shot by a photographer coming in the press car that's following around. On twenty seconds after the president's been killed, right, yeah. he shoots a picture of all the people in front of the sign. The women are distraught, and the other men are moving away. And there's a man in front of the sign with a fedora hat, and he's putting a a dog on a leash. He's healing a dog.
0: And who is this individual, do you reckon?
1: Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was a man who was in love with his dog Sheba. He didn't go anywhere without Sheba. And he was a very disgusting guy because he even had sex with his dog, the dog would come up on his leg and start humping him and he thought it was the funniest thing in the world and the people in his, in the carousel club are like, Jack, will you please that's disgusting. Oh she loves it, she loves it. He was married to his dog. He locked her up, you know, the day that um, the day that he shot Oswald, he took her, Sheba, in the car, left her in the car, but he left the door unlatched so that, you know, she would be rescued. He knew he was going. And the reason that Jack Ruby shot Oswald was because he'd rather go down in history as the man who killed the man who supposedly killed the president than the man who killed president. He actually said to a doctor, you can say that Jack Ruby killed President Kennedy. Oswald did not shoot President Kennedy. You can say that Jack Ruby killed President Kennedy. He told that to a doctor when he was in, uh, incarcerated. He was uh, treated, he was treated by psychiatrists, he was treated by physicians. And this was discovered, as a matter of fact, if you want to see the man who discovered it, Ralph Schoen, or Schoenman, and it's in the, the Geraldo Rivera videotape where he first leaked the Dr. Zapruder film with the leaker of it. Robert Groden. Robert Groden was an agent of US Army Intelligence he was made the custodian of the Zapruder film that was leaked to the public. The Zapruder film that was leaked to the public is what the government wants you to believe happened. They want you to believe that that Mickey Mouse cartoon called the Zapruder film is the real deal. L- it is limited not. Limited
0: hangout which you probably, right. well, you're probably familiar with that term of course.
1: The other thing is People don't realize the Zapruder film was not seen by anyone in total until 1975.
0: Dick Gregory, That's when- part of the, the Geraldo oh, yeah. Rivera show, of course, too, as you say. And yeah, absolutely.
1: In that show, at the end, they bring on Ralph Shunman. Right. And Ralph has the documents in his hand. And he has the medical report. And he got it. And he reads it right from there. That Jack Ruby said Oswald did not kill the president, you can say that Jack Ruby shot the president. But they suppressed that like so much else. And Jack Ruby was an agent of Mossad. Jack Ruby had been working for Richard Nixon since 1947. I found a letter, as have so many other researchers, written by the staff member of Congressman Richard Nixon, to the FBI, to J. Edgar Hoover, asking them to go easy on Jack Ruby because Jack Ruby was acting as an informant for Congressman Richard M. Nixon and the Congressional Investigation into Organized Crime. That was in 1947. In the 1950s, Jack Ruby was running guns to Cuba, to Castro. And then after Castro turned communist, Jack Ruby continued running guns to Cuba, to anti-Castro Cubans. And he was doing this all under the aegis of the Central Intelligence Agency. And George Moran Shield worked with George H.W. Bush in the petroleum industry down in Haiti. He was in Haiti in those days. And then he got Oswald the job. He connected Oswald to Ruth and Michael Payne, who connected Oswald to his job in the Texas School Book Depository.
0: You know, it's so, interesting, yeah. too, the, the Riley Coffee Company, apparently what happened yeah. there, too, after the assassination uh, took mm-hmm. place. And that's where Oswald had worked for some time. I believe it was based, was it either, was it Dallas or New Orleans? I'm, I think it might have been Dallas, perhaps. But anyways, after the assassination, yep. you know what happened? It was a huge number of the people that were employed there at this coffee company oh, outfit oh, organization yeah. ended up going to Nassau. What's up I with really- that?
1: What's up with that? They all got uh, secure jobs. It's you with NASA. You're right. Do you know that Lee Harvey Oswald, he didn't like being called Harvey. Lee Oswald saw the U-2 photographs before President Kennedy saw them. Jack Siller and Stovall, he was working at the uh, development, the photo development lab in Dallas, where the U-2 films were rushed to be developed and then flown to Washington where Arthur Lindahl, the foremost uh, photo interpretation expert at the CIA, briefed President Kennedy on the Russian missiles that were found in Cuba. Oswald saw those pictures before. He had a clearance to work in that place, even though he had been a defector. Now, here's the real deal on Oswald. Oswald was down there as an agent of the Office of Naval Intelligence, he was down there as an informant to the Justice Department. He was reporting to the FBI and J. Edgar Hoover, and he was reporting to Robert Kennedy. And amongst the documents that I found in that the Trump tranche last year was the telegram that was sent to the FBI by an informant the day before, warning them that there would be an attempted assassination on President Kennedy on November 22nd in Dallas, forewarning them. Guess what? The document says it came from Lee. You're joking. I'm not joking. It says the informant Lee.
0: That was Chicago. It was the same thing, apparently. Some uh, FBI contact or or employee, uh, undercover type agent... Blew the whistle, uh, you know, tipping off uh, the powers that be to the fact that Chicago, there was going to be an attempted assassination taking place.
1: Because that's Abraham Bolden. He was a secret service man, Abraham Bolden. They were going to set up a certain guy named Thomas Valet or Thomas Vale, as the uh, patsy in Chicago. They had a patsy in every city. Sure. They were looking for doubles. This thing, when I when I deduced the absolute necessity that there had to be two bodies... Let me just tell you, to get the right answer, you have to ask the right question. And I asked myself the right question. After reading voluminously all of the witness testimony, the Warren Commission report, Harry Livingston's uh, High Treason 1 and High Treason 2, David Lifton's Best Evidence, I looked at it all and I said to myself, What is the answer if everybody is telling the truth, you know, because they try to debunk each other. They tried to debunk the doctors at Dallas. The Dallas doctors saw the real thing. And then the the Warren Commission doctors saw something, which was at odds with what Dallas saw. And I said to myself, what is the solution if everybody's telling the truth? The only solution was that there had to be two bodies. So then I start looking around and I said, well, where would we get two bodies? Well, there was a police officer killed, right? Tippett. And I said to myself, how come we've never seen a picture of Tippett other than one picture that was released at the time he died showing a man who was about 26 years old with a surly look on his face and an Elvis Presley haircut and uh, kind of an Elvis Presley shirt. So I came to call the picture the Tippett Elvis picture. I said, why haven't we seen another picture of this man? And, And it was then 30 years. And I asked that question. So, I organized a, a group of investigators and we all started looking for pictures of Tippett. And we found three very rare pictures of Tippett. And he, as each picture came in, I started to see more and more. I said, Well, you know, well, let me backtrack a little bit. I was in the midst of this investigation because I had discovered the Doctor and the Zapruder film. So, that's where I dove into the whole case. So, my girlfriend at that time said to me, Robert, where was Tippett shot? Now, I remember very clearly reading in the New York Times that Tippett was shot in the eye and horribly disfigured. And for that reason, his body was buried in a sealed coffin and there was no viewing, not even the family, not the wife. No one was allowed to see Tippett's body. And he was buried on Saturday, folks. They tell you now that Tippett was buried on Monday, along with Oswald and President Kennedy. Tippett was buried the next day on Saturday, I saw it, and there's there's still films of it, and although they changed the dates to November 25th, he was buried on November 23rd in a grave that is guarded by an armed guard 24 hours a day, okay, so the first key was, I was asked this question, how was Tippett killed? I said he was shot through the eye, horribly disfigured, but let me make sure. And right at arm's reach was Jim Bishop's The Day Kennedy Was Shot. So I grab the book, go to the index, look up Tippett. It says, death of Tippett, murder of Tippett, page so-and-so. I go to that page, I start reading it, and I read that the assassin shot Tippett three times in the chest. One bullet hit a button in his abdomen, a brass button in his suit tunic, and gouged. It hit the button and it gouged. The flesh, it didn't go in, but the other bullets went in. One near the chest, one near the ribs. And then as Tippett lay on the ground, wounded, the assassin walked up to him, put the gun to his head, and fired a single shot. And when I read that he had been shot in the temple, my eyes lit up, and I said to myself, this is it. This is the answer. They used Tippett's brain for the autopsy. Because the autopsy said the brain showed one bullet through the head. But we know there wasn't enough brain to make that assessment when we get the testimony from Dallas. There was less than half of the brain left. And yet the diagram of the brain that's dissected by the Warren Commission shows you a right hemisphere, a left hemisphere, a whole brain. Tippett's brain was whole. It only had a hole in it. President Kennedy's brain was evaporated. And uh, it rained down on the limousine. And there are horrible photographs available now where you can see all of it in the back seat. But more importantly, there is a strip of the Zapruder film that shows that when Jackie went out to get the piece of skull, the whole back of the trunk was washed in blood. And the blood was flowing with waves because the car accelerated. So the blood was on the back of the limousine trunk in pools. Jackie jumps into it to grab the head, or the piece of the head. The Secret Service driver floors the car and the acceleration almost throws Jackie off the back, but at the same time, she's saved by Clint Hill, but the blood that was on the back of the trunk starts to flow in waves and ripples as the acceleration unfolds and the wind starts to hit it. It's horrible. Listen, it's a sanitized copy of the assassination what is shown in the uh, Zapruder film as you know it is sanitized it's pretty it looks good believe me, what really happened is so horrible that I am torn I I say I I have some of the missing frames and I know it so well because I, I know it through the eyes of witnesses like Mr. William Newman, I know the lady in red. I knew the lady in red, Jean Hill. I showed her a picture of Tippett, and she scowled. And I said, did you know Tippett? And she said, yeah, that's the scurve. And I I was taken aback. And a professor from University of Hartford was there with me, Professor George Michael Avika, who was an investigator in this case, with me. He and I were there, and I was doing the interview. And he said to me, what did she say? He said, "Did she say scuzz?" And I said, "No, I think she said scurve. And she said, "Scuzz, scurves. He was all of them." She really scowled. She hated him. She yeah, said, and "I." And the
0: him. reason being, what exactly? The what reason was-
1: she said, "I hated him. He beat his women, and there was nothing he wouldn't do." I said, "What?" She said, "There was nothing he wouldn't do." And then she went on to tell me that he was a friend of Jack Ruby, and that they used to ride around, and that. Tippett would protect Ruby when he was do- dropping the heroin shipments. So my suspicion is that they hooked him. The mafia, Jack Ruby, hooked Tippett on drugs, on heroin. And they made him completely and totally dependent. The other thing is this. You know about the 18 witnesses who were killed in the two years after the um, assassination?
0: Was that all it was? <laughs> Just 18? Thought it was well,
1: more that than was that. 18 in two years. Okay. Those are the- So I said to myself which nobody else said to themselves, 18 people got killed for what they were talking about. What were they talking about? And I found that the majority, a large segment of these people, were people who knew about the relationship between Jack Ruby and J.D. Tippett. For example, Hank Kellum. Hank Kellum was killed being thrown through a plate glass window, and he bled to death. Hank Kellum's wife was a stripper for Jack Ruby, and Hank Kellum was going around telling people that he knew that Jack Ruby and J.D. Tippett were really tight friends, that they used to ride around in Tippett's car together. And here's the most interesting statement that Hank Kellum made, and which probably got Hank Kellum killed. He said, I saw Ruby and Tippett in Tippett's car together. And they were sitting so close to each other, you'd think they were going out with each other. There's an inference there. There's an insinuation there. And this is an insinuation that was also made by Jim Garrison. And he was excoriated, crucified in, in, in the newspapers and the media for what he said. And he says it in the trail, on the Trail of the Assassins. He says... The John F. Kennedy assassination was a homosexual thrill kill. Did you ever hear that before?
0: No, I have not. Who were the uh who were the homosexuals involved other than the likes of say David Ferry, uh, okay. Clay Clay I, Shaw, which would, I yeah, think David, Oliver Stone David, you know laid Ferry, out there in his film? Clay quite well. Shaw,
1: David mm-hmm. Ferry, Perry Russo, although he was tangential. It turns out that Oswald was used as a boy toy. Mm. He infiltrated. You know, having gone to Russia and learned Russian ways, he was able to do that. The whole clique, it was a nest. Um, a male over.
0: type, like a honey trap, the way that they used the women in those sort of well, situations.
1: Yes, they got a lot of politicians that way. Sure. And a lot of southern politicians were swish hitters, including Lyndon Johnson.
0: Well, you're, you're if, saying he was, he was bisexual,
1: Yes, he was. Yes, he was. I also knew Madeline Brown, his mistress. I had long, long conversations. In 1995, 96, she and I spoke for hours. She sent me an unexpurgated uh, manuscript of her book, Texas in the Morning. I still have it. She had an illegitimate child with Lyndon Johnson. That's right. And And they used to have... Uh, sexual liaisons that were arranged at the Adolphus Hotel Mm -hmm. and he would arrange to have adjoining suites right with the double doors between them so that if they both wanted they could both open and go across sure so she would go there with Stephen Lyndon Johnson's illegitimate son for meetings but one day she took her uh, nanny and uh, the nanny was uh, preening the boy and Johnson didn't know that she was there her name was Dale And she had been the nanny to Madeline Brown when she was a child. And so she'd been her servant all her life. And now she was being the nanny to her illegitimate son with Lyndon Johnson. So Dale is there preening the little boy, combing his hair down, you know, kneeling. And suddenly the door opened and Lyndon Johnson was standing there. And he looked at her and he looked at him. And she looked at Lyndon Johnson and she saw his face go from her to the boy, and then back to her, and she got scared. Well, she ended up she, ended up
0: she uh, ended up dead, did she not? For
1: whatever she reason, ended up disappearing. She was disappeared. She didn't die. Okay. She went. For, listen to this. Johnson gets into bed with Madeline Brown, and he says to her, "You're going to have to get rid of Dale." And she says, "But, Lyndon, I can't do that. She's she's part of my life. She's been my nanny since I was a little girl." And he said. You got to get rid of Dale. And he said, she said, I can't do that. And he turned around, he turned his back on her. He said, get rid of Dale. And uh, she was in a quandary. So then a couple of days later, she gave Dale a list of groceries to go and buy. And she was just supposed to go to the grocery store and come back. And she never came back.
0: I think it was Jim Mars who talked about this. Maybe others such as yourself have. But she I think she overheard something she was not supposed to. And that was the issue with LBJ, was it not?
1: Oh, no, no, no. The issue was that she looked at the boy and she looked at Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson looked at the boy, looked at her, looked at the boy, looked at her. And she, Dale, he saw in her face. Dale didn't know that the boy was Lyndon Johnson's son. But when she saw the boy in front of her face, and she saw the father in front of her face, and she saw the eyes and the the physiognomy, it was obvious to Johnson that she put two and two together and came up with four. And that's why he had to get rid of her. Lyndon Johnson had his own sister killed.
0: Yeah, I heard about that.
1: Malcolm Wallace was his hitman.
0: There we go. And that's one of the... I don't think you've actually... Uh, there's others that have talked about this, but there is a partial fingerprint... Roger Stone yep. has. There found in the sniper's nest. Malcolm Mac Wallace. Uh, do you agree that the, he had a role in things, or not? It looks quite suspicious.
1: He had a role. I, I have. Uh, I acquired the fingerprints, and I was. Uh, for ten years, I worked very closely with the Department of Homeland Security, and I was certified as a fingerprint technician. I could officially take people's fingerprints and sign them off, so that they could get security clearances. And I got those fingerprints, and that is Malcolm Wallace's pinky. But let me tell you this. There was a Malcolm Wallace double in the Dallas uh, School Book uh, Depository that day, and I found him in a film that's been released. Old news footage that was compiled by a man named Don Cooper came out about three or four years ago, and I've been going through that. It's a treasure trove. I found Tippett's car in Dealey Plaza with the number 10 and the shirt hanging in the back window. And I found a film of a man with a broad face, dark hair, horn-rimmed glasses that the moment I looked at him, I thought, damn, that looks like that looks like Malcolm Wallace. And the narrator of this film says, look at this man coming out of uh, the Texas School Book Depository. He was stopped by police when a policeman on the upper floor knocked on a window and called attention to the policeman on the ground floor to stop him and interrogate him. And it says, notice how the man looks drunk. And the man does look drunk. He looks tipsy. And he's, you know, talking to the cops in a tipsy manner. And I go, damn, that looks like Mac Wallace. And all of a sudden, and this is, kind of the psychic detective knack or instinct that I have that I shoot over to something that deals with Giancana, Mooney, Sam Giancana, who was intimately involved. He had his mechanics down there. And I start reading about Sam Giancana and Charles Nicoletti and Richard Kane, And it turns out that Sam Giancana had sent I think Sam Giancana was there in Dealey Plaza. To be honest with you, but that's a side story. He sent Charles Nicoletti and Richard Kane from the Chicago mob to be shooters in Dealey Plaza. Charles Nicoletti shot the president in the back from the DalTex building, Zapruder's building. But the guy who shot from the Texas School Book Depository missed the shot; hit the street wounded a guy way, way down the street and the shot was so far off that they couldn't believe that anybody could be such a bad shot. He missed the whole car and he shot the bullet way down the street that hit the concrete and wounded James Tague.
0: The scope okay. was way out of alignment, the rifle that they found up on the no. sniper's nest and there were three of them. They started with the Mauser and then there's like a, a, a British Cute. one and then it ends up with, was it the Italian the Caracano I think is the name?
1: yeah i mean come on
0: like what's going on there really uh things are true
1: but i believe i believe that richard kane took the shot but he was drunk imagine you're gonna kill the president of the united states see right john connor and john connor was a horrible sadist he did horrible things not only to his own men to the police He beat up policemen so badly that the police were afraid to go after him afterwards. I mean, I've I've read, I'm reading his brother's book about him. But here's the key about Richard Kane. Sam Giancana was really pissed off at Richard Kane because he says Richard Kane missed the shot. Richard Kane was supposed to put the kill shot in President Kennedy. He was supposed to be the first shot. And if he had hit, nothing else would have been necessary. The grassy knoll scene would not have happened. But he missed the shot. And I think that he was either too scared or he had a conscience and he got drunk because he was so upset about having to do this thing that he missed the shot. So Giancana was really, really mad at him. Hated him because of the complications. Imagine if only one shot had killed President Kennedy and that was it. And then Oswald was framed for it. It would have been so easy, so clean. Well, it didn't turn out that way. So when he got back to Chicago, Sam Giancana did something horrible to him. Really horrible. So much so that it changed Richard Kane. He got to hate Sam Giancana. He got to hate himself. He lost face. He lost his manhood. Giancana used to like to take hot pokers and stick it up people's butts. That's how he silenced a lot of people. And that's in the book, okay? That's from his brother. So... He abused Richard Kane, and about two years later, Richard Kane got drunk in a bar in Chicago, and he started shooting his mouth off about the Kennedy assassination. The next day, Richard Kane was in the same bar, and a group of men walked in, guns drawn, told all the patrons to get along, get by the wall. They walked up to Richard Kane, put a gun in his mouth, and they blew his brains out. And that's how he ended. Sam Giancana, for all those people who hunger and thirst for justice, right? As Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they shall be satisfied. A lot of dissatisfaction is in the belief that all these people got away with it. Well, they didn't get away with it. Sam Giancana was part of the plot. He was subpoenaed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations. Charles Nicoletti was part of it. An assassin went to his Chicago townhouse. He was let in, so it was someone that Sam Giancana knew and trusted. The assassin killed Charles Nicoletti, and the assassin killed Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana was cooking some pasta and sausages, and the assassin went up to him and put a bullet in the back of his head, killed him. He fell on his back, but then the assassin put six bullets around his mouth. That is the mafia sign for a stool pigeon or somebody who's going to talk. So apparently, Sam Giancana had made a deal with the House Select Committee on Assassinations to testify in return for immunity. So Charles Nicoletti was killed. Sam Giancana was killed.
0: Johnny Rossetti ended up uh, in Johnny chopped up into pieces in and uh, thrown into a barrel yeah. in the middle of the I guess the Atlantic yeah. or something along <laughs> down in Miami. Miami
1: Bay, they coast yeah, they drew him out of an oil... Isn't it interesting that they also... This is another sign. They put him in an oil drum. Oil drum.
0: Zapata. Lands
1: a pot. I probably said Zapata oil scraped off on it. All right. Then there's George de George de is subpoenaed by the House Select Committee on Assassinations and he is distraught. There is a letter in the JFK files... Of George deMonshield writing to george H. W. Bush, Director of the CIA, asking him to talk to the FBI to leave him alone to that he 's not going to do anything to you know it 's similar to the the ruby letter the FBI you know.
0: A little more clarification, though, on this actual letter. Was this the letter which George Bush uh, tried to excuse himself, saying, "Oh, but I'm not that George Bush of the CIA. No, no, it's just no, some, it's no. this other guy that nobody's ever apparently ever uh, come across or discovered. Although there is some, there's rumor that he existed. You know, uh, like as if people are really are going to believe that it's just a total it's cover not story."
1: That- no, it's not that letter. I'll give you I'll give you some information on that letter in a second. This is a letter that was penned by De Shield, mm-hmm. direct to George H.W. Sure, Bush. That's right. That he worked together. He worked for Zapata Oil in Haiti because Haiti, Haiti had oil and Zapata was down there and he was acting as an agent. You have to realize undersea drilling was a brain child of the CIA. And it was George H.W. Butch, who was the front man for the CIA oil industry, the submarine um, drilling industry. And that is a big reason why we went into Vietnam, by the way. This was a very big reason. And this came to me in 1971. I visited Dallas and I visited a certain Dr. Davidson, who was a very high ranking member of the local Minutemen and uh, john birch society and good old boys i was a real hippie straight hippie those days and i went there to help a friend of mine come back to new york i drive her back after her fiance died and i met this dr davidson and he looked at me like a rare animal like a hippie he wanted to understand what was in my brain and what made me tick you know he asked me about my background my education all that stuff but then he said to me son do you know why we are in vietnam and I said to him, yes, sir, we're there to preserve democracy and stop communism. And he said to me, son, you are very naive. And I'm, you know, yeah, I'm a college student, you know, I think I know something. And I'm taking aback, and he says, son, you are very naive. And I said, oh, he said, son, the reason we are in Vietnam is that there are vast, vast oil fields off the coast of Vietnam, under the sea, and we cannot let the Red Chinese get their hands on that oil. And I've never forgotten that. That was uh, one of the turning points in my education into geopolitics and what what made Vietnam tick. The other thing that made Vietnam tick was the heroin trade, which the CIA had cornered and was working with the French mafia.
0: Golden Triangle, yeah, and uh, Air America, which now we got, I guess, 2.0, fully in operation out of Afghanistan and elsewhere.
1: Yeah, well, the the information on this is in Alfred McCloy's Heroin and the Politics of Southeast Asia. And in that book, you find all the people that were in the JFK assassination, specifically Colonel Lansdale, Edward Lansdale, U.S. Air Force.
0: Another character who was said to have been in Dealey Plaza the day of the assassination.
1: That's why I brought him up. He's in the picture of the tramps. The tramps are being marched one way past the Texas School Book Depository, and he's going the other way, glasses on, the ring on his finger, business suit, and Fletcher Prouty recognized and said, that's him. That's Edward Lansdale. And there's another picture of Lansdale with George H.W. Bush in Dealey Plaza. And there are two pictures of George W. Bush... In sneakers and jeans and a bomber jacket, also in Dealey Plaza. He was there to watch his father's show. There's pictures of Rip Robertson tipping his hat to President Kennedy just before he's assassinated. And he is one of the men who was involved in the uh, Operation 40 attacks on uh, Castro and Cuba and those plots to assassinate.
0: Wow. um, And you've talked, Robert, about how it's all really just one huge conspiracy. There's like a a network. uh, uh, Some have referred to as the Octopus. What we here on the Robin Hood like to refer to as the Kraken. But that goes right up into the John Lennon assassination, the RFK assassination, Operation 40. That's ringing a lot of bells for me here on this end of things. Ole Damagard, I think, has done a lot of work in that area. Yes, he's a
1: good friend. He's done a lot of work. Hey, I I, got (laughs) to, and just a quick question no doubt. To- it's a long way to korea just let me say this sure. there's no doubt in my mind that the cia killed john lennon tried to kill reagan killed Jimi hendrix and killed jim morrison i think they are all cia assassinations
0: you know the hendrix uh, evidence and testimony is a lot more damning than what i guess from what i can see from with respect to morris and maybe you've got more insight on that but yeah hendrix was held down and his lungs literally filled up i guess with red wine and i'm not sure barbiturates and what else his manager had him off mike jeffries a real kind of spooky type character apparently yeah, so was. you know we could go on at such great length here and i don't want to keep you longer than what we already have you've done a real yeoman's service here thank you it's incredible you know you a real class act uh but with respect to general lansdale and fletcher and so forth and even the work of anthony sutton this kind of ties around full circle to uh because you brought the name lansdale up it it made me think of chris milligan uh who is the uh publisher of what is i know
1: chris chine day
0: Yeah, ask ask him what the hell, if you would, next time you talk to him, because we need some sort of intermediary or something here. But he flaked out on us twice. We had interviews booked with him on two separate occasions. The first time he got back to us saying he fell asleep, and the second time, nothing at all. It was this total... Uh Ended up being go- ghosted by the guy. Yeah, it was, and it's especially—I'm yeah. not sure what the problem was exactly, but maybe we—I mm-hmm. uh, can't. I'm, I'm not even going to speculate. So uh it, it, mm-hmm. we had to have the, you know, captain's orders. He—he he ended up getting keel hauled.
1: So. Oh. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I never—I never hang up uh, a host. I take it very seriously. Like it done to me, and I never do it to anybody. No. You know. Yeah.
0: At least get back so, to the person and say, "Hey, you know, I'm sick. I've had something urgent come up. I'm sorry I can't make it." And there you go. That's all the person has to do. It's really that simple.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, before we go, you did mention this letter mentioning Bush. That letter was a letter from J. Edgar Hoover, citing that they had found out George H. W. Bush of the CIA and Sheffield Edwards of the National Security Agency had briefed or debriefed the anti-Castro-Cuban community in Miami about their feelings about the JFK assassination. And they reported the anti-Castro community was very sad about President Kennedy's assassination because they had hopes that President Kennedy was going to uh, make peace with Castro. President Kennedy had made peace with the anti-Castro Cubans by... Retrieving all the prisoners of the Bay of Pigs, he got them all back. He gave uh, medicine and food to Castro in return for freeing almost 1,500 prisoners they had captured at the Bay of Pigs. And he, on November 18th, four days before he was assassinated, he helicoptered into the Orange Bowl to address the uh, Miami Cuban community. And they appreciated him, they gave him an ovation, they were grateful that he had gotten back the prisoners, their relatives, and he expressed the hope of improving relations with Cuba. And so this is a very interesting thing that George H.W. Bush and Sheffield Edwards, very important name. It's a name that I have never forgotten since since the first moment I read it because it's so unusual. Sheffield Edwards. It's a very important reason I mention this. He was NSA and Bush was CIA and Hoover knew that Bush had been in Miami on November 23rd. This is the next day after the assassination. But George H.W. Bush of Zapata Oil had called the FBI to report on a Republican named James Parrott, whom he had heard talking about assassinating the president two weeks before. And he called them from Tyler, Texas, at about 1.15 or 1.30 in the afternoon. And he made a point of telling them that he was uh, he was in Tyler, Texas. Or he told them he was in Houston, where he was actually in Tyler. But regardless of that, he tried to frame a man named James Parrott. And to implicate him in the assassination. The next day, he was over in Miami debriefing anti-Castro Cubans. And why him? Because he and Rip Robertson were the guys, the main CIA guys running Operation 40. Operation 40 were patrol boat attacks on Cuba that were being launched from Zapata oil drilling platforms. Now, the reason I mentioned Sheffield Edwards is this. When I read Corso's book, Philip Corso's book, The Day After Roswell, which is about all about UFOs, the secrecy of UFOs, and how he briefed President Kennedy and Robert Kennedy on the Roswell UFO and all of the reverse engineering. He says General Richard Cabell was the second in command in the CIA, and that Sheffield Edwards was the number three man in UFOs at the CIA. And Richard Cabell was fired by President Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, along with Alan Dulles and Richard Bissell. And Richard Cabell, General Richard Cabell, or Cabell as they say it down south, Richard Cabell, was the brother of the mayor of Dallas, Earl Cabell
0: who was this responsible was for changing the parade route uh, like just the day before they set out and touring yes. through Dallas. On top of that, apparently the night before the assassination, LBJ and Candy got into a big argument as far as the seating uh, arrangement. Jackie is uh, said to have overheard. This is according to Jim Mars, at least. God rest a, his soul. But yeah.
1: uh, It was actually in Fort Worth in the morning at about 7 in the morning. He gave a speech in Fort Worth before going to Dallas. And before he went to give the speech, Johnson went in there and tried to get President Kennedy to change the seating arrangements and to swap his protege, Governor Connolly, from the president's car to his car and to put his enemy, Senator Yarbrough, in with President Kennedy. Because the deal was this, President Kennedy had told Johnson, you're not going to be on the ticket next year because of his corruption. Johnson was going to be impeached yeah, he was november going
0: down. Th- yeah, apparently he was facing some pretty serious charges.
1: That day, the 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 investigative uh Senate committee that investigated him was to give its report at two o'clock on that afternoon of november twenty second. So if Johnson did not become president by two in the afternoon or three in the afternoon that day, he was facing a long prison term. So coincidence he arranged
0: theories, more of these well, coincidence theories
1: yeah so that's it's a very uh, very, very convoluted affair, but it was a complicity. The Democratic Party killed President Kennedy, folks. Just look at the standing ovation. it's on YouTube, Johnson's first speech to the Congress to the joint session of Congress, which happened on the day before Thanksgiving of 1963. The saddest Thanksgiving of my life which I referred to in the documentary on YouTube, warning the ultimate secret of the JFK assassination. You'll hear about it. But when you see that video and you see the standing ovation that all those cowards gave to Lyndon Johnson, because they all knew that Johnson had killed President Kennedy, but they were all applauding and saying, please don't kill me, don't kill me. You're the boss now. And uh, the collusion of the Democratic Party and the murder of President Kennedy is what led us all into Vietnam and the deaths of 58,000 of my my generation. I don't forgive Johnson for that. He was a mass murderer. He oh, was a major mass- psychopath. Oh, it goes on. He was a very disgusting... Apparently,
0: very, yeah, very rude individual uh, taking uh, calls in the White House while sitting on the toilet... And uh, having some, you know, pretty massive bowel movements. And he thought it was apparently quite humorous the way that uh,
1: that he would force his secretary into the stall with him.
0: You're joking as a male or female.
1: Male. Listen, you have to read a a thing called the darks, not the dark side account, the dark side of Lyndon Johnson by Gore Vidal. Look that up. Boy, he'll open your eyes. And
0: Roger Stone really did a great expose <laughs> on the man and this is one of the things we never got into we don't have time I don't want to keep any longer but this business of uh, the Reagan assassination where we had multiple shooters uh, on on the scene Hinckley, of course the Manchurian candidate as with Lennon's assassination Mark David Chapman two of them being mm-hmm. kind of framed and set up well, more or less so.
1: I, earlier, I'd be happy to do another show with yeah. you and I referred to this earlier I said to you that that visitation, the ghost, the spirit of my teacher, Professor Chang, prepared me for something that came seven years later, where you know, the cha- that was the, the crossroads of my life. At the age of 33, I had another near-death experience. I almost died of fright. And that was on the night that Ronald Reagan was almost killed. Someone came out of the grave to warn me about something, and uh, he almost killed me. And uh, I'm still working for him. That's all I'll say. So, if you're interested, I'll be willing to to spook you out and spook out the whole audience and tell you who really solved the John F. Kennedy assassination.
0: We should uh, work on getting set it, something set up. Then I'd imagine for the fall, maybe uh, we have our our annual September 11th show. There is a, a JFK show in November. Uh, you know, today's main feature event was such a train wreck, of course, that I, I don't know what to say, frankly. Although, it's too bad we didn't have the same sound quality uh, with what we've, you know, experienced here on the back end of things. This has been great, really. So, And you, right. the whole time yourself, recording from your end as well? From what I- Yes,
1: I am. And I'm going to go over the first parts, and I'm going to salvage what I can. I think it was, there's some good stuff there. Because there you were coming in clearly. And my computer is picking up me uh my own voice clearly. And that's how that's happened. It happened with Richard Hoagland on one of the shows we had. Uh, really bad breaking up, but my my recording was pristine and so he swapped it. He put my recording on his website so that people could hear it. Yeah. I'll edit it and uh, salvage what I can. But the second part was fine and I my name is Morningstar. and I go to bed. <laughs> they say, How come you don't like the morning? I said, Don't you know the morning star disappears when the sun comes up? So
0: But isn't that bad for your health? I had a doctor not so long ago tell me you should go to bed at midnight and get up at 7.
1: That's the deal with hypertension. Go to bed, get 7 or 8 hours of sleep. My minimum is 6. I work work very well on 6, and my limit is 8. I I don't like more than 8, but I make sure that I get my 7. I try for 7. That's the key. Just be regular. Get your sleep in, you know?
0: Does it matter whether or not you're getting to bed early in the morning or at a reasonable hour, say 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock at night? Because I am a night owl myself, by and large. Mm -hmm. I can't help it. I really got to work to fight it and to try to... In fact, I take melatonin here, which uh, is something a friend recently drew to my attention. So I've been dosing myself with that. It's really hard to get here in Korea. We, We did manage to... To sneak a little bit in under the radar, not quite smuggling, so much as just through through eBay. None of the stores have any of any of these products, or it's CBD. You can forget about Mm -hmm. getting that in Korea. It, it, although we did manage, we did order it through the web. So, but they just don't know about it here. It's a real. It's amazing how deeply indoctrinated these people are, and of course they think they're right in everything they do. (laughs) This, you know, it's terrible. It's just oh, it's really sad. So
1: that's the pharmaceutical mafia that's indoctrinated.
0: There's 10 pharmacies on every city block. I kid you not. It's, yeah. it's brutal. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. It's
1: true.
0: Well, Robert, we've got to uh, let's not forget one of the things we could, didn't do, although I did partially. I gave a shout out for your website, ufodigest.com. Also, due right. to listeners' attention, that you can be found easily enough at Robert, or I'm sorry, Rob Morningstar. I'm not sure what the final, there's a number there involved too. Is it like 32 or something? In Twitter? Well, you have the same handle on Facebook and Twitter, don't you, Rob Morningstar?
1: Well, Facebook is Robert, and it has the avatar of a dolphin. Look for Flipper, because I I was involved in the uh, development of artificial intelligence. I I hate to say it. My brain was used in uh, research to how to program a computer to think like a human being. But the upshot was that the gadgetry that they used had its effect on my brain and has produced a human brain that can think like a computer as well. So that's uh, another story. Uh, Fordham University artificial intelligence program that I got involved with. with the uh, Office of Naval Intelligence and IBM in 1969. I call it the Krell Brain Boost. (laughs) My IQ jumped. In high school, I had an IQ of 131. And after going through college and going through this program, I had my IQ tested again. And it's uh, 160 in uh, normal thinking. But when it comes to geometry, it's 166. And I tell people the key to my solutions of the JFK assassination have been geometric proofs, geometric theorems. And that's why nobody argues with them. You know, you can argue... Linguistic arguments and uh, verbal and logical arguments. But when you're messing with geometry and you produce a theorem, you cannot uh, debunk or discredit a theorem. Geometry is something that is absolute. It either is or ain't. One little example Lee Harvey Oswald in the Texas School Book Depository looking at the parade in, in from the vestibule. You know, there's an argument as to whether it's Lee Oswald or Billy Lovelady.
0: That's right.
1: Well, the shirt the man is wearing in that picture creates a unique sharp V line because the top button is missing. You see? And now when you compare the man in the vestibule in the Alkins photo who's looking at the president being shot and everybody knows it's Oswald, you see that shirt, you see the texture of it, you see the sharp V, almost like a dagger, you know, it's long not a short V or triangle at the the neck. Well, when Oswald is arrested, there's a picture of him, it's a famous picture of him in handcuffs with his fists. And he's saying, look, they've got me handcuffed and they beat me up. And they're trying to make it look like a black power symbol or something like that, you know? But if you look, he's wearing that shirt. The top button is missing and the angle is the same. And that proves that the man in the vestibule is Lee Oswald and not Billy Lovelady. That's geometry. The same applies to my work on the brain, the trajectories the, of the uh, paths through the brains. When I read the Warren Commission report, autopsy on the brain, and then I read the and uh, the uh, Earl Rose, the Dallas coroner's autopsy of J.D. Tippett, As I said to you, I was pre-med, and I love medicine. I love biology. I kept up my work. I'm reading it. And I'm like, God, this is a paraphrase. The Tippett autopsy description of the brain is a paraphrase, or I should say, the Warren Commission is a paraphrase of Tippett's brain. It describes the damaging of the same organs, the severing of the cerebral peduncles. It describes the same path, the trajectory. Whereas the Warren Commission says the bullet came in at the top of the back of the head and exited through the temple, Earl Rose says the Tippett was shot in the zygomatic process at the parietal lobe, the right temple, and the bullet course through his brain, hit the back of his skull, but did not exit. Tippett had a thick skull. It's just so tight, Jaffe. It is just so tight. My work is so tight that one proof leads to the other. I just described to you the description of Tippett's bullet wound into the head, single crack through the brain, hit the back of the head, it beveled the skull. It means it cracked it. If you've ever seen a BB shot at a, at a windshield, you know how the BB makes the hole and knocks out the piece of glass? It's like a little conical piece of glass. Well, he did, that bullet did that to the bone in Tippett's head, but it did not exit. It means it didn't break the skin. So then I'm looking at the purported back of the head photo of President Kennedy, and I get a high-resolution picture of it, and I enhance it in the computer. And I go into the wound, and the hair is growing out of the wound. The hair is intact in the bullet hole. It's not JFK's skull. It's Tippett's skull.
0: Well, uh, Robert Kennedy also is said to have somehow done whatever he could to get his hands on his brother's brain, or what what was supposedly said to have been his brother's brain. What's the story behind that, just in a nutshell?
1: The story is this. Lyndon Johnson got the brain, and he kept it in the White House through December. Can you believe that? He actually took possession of the brain, and he kept it as a trophy in his in the White House until December, when it was turned over to the National Archives. Oh, actually, the Warren Commission, and then the National Archives. So then it was stashed in the National Archives, and through some connection... Robert Kennedy was able to get that brain and then they, it is believed that he disposed of it, that he had it buried or some other way disposed. But it wasn't President Kennedy's brain. There was not enough of President Kennedy's brain to, to do an autopsy uh, of the, as described in the Warren Commission report. As I right. said, there was no midbrain left, so there couldn't have been any right cerebral peduncles, the brain was liquefied. Half of it went up into the air and evaporated, the other uh, half of the right side, and the other part just dropped out of the back of his head into a bucket. I knew uh, one of the surgeons, Dr. Charles Crenshaw. I met him personally in 1994 in Chicago, and then I saw him 93 in Chicago, and I saw him in 94, 96, and 98 in Dallas, and he told me he looked into the skull. He could look right through the back and the hole. He also put his uh, finger in the throat wound, and he said it was as small as his pinky. And finally, and most importantly, he closed President Kennedy's eyes. He took his fingers in the uh, Dallas, uh, in the Parkland uh, trauma room one, and he closed President Kennedy's eyes. And the photographs that have been released, called the Death Stare photos, show a person with his eyes open. It's not President Kennedy. Tippett's pictures have been doctored to appear like President Kennedy. Because Tippett bore such a close resemblance to President Kennedy that, I quote, Professor George Michael Avika, who said to an audience of 200 JFK researchers, where I had asked the question, why have we not seen a picture of Tippett? Could it be that they had used Tippett's brain for the autopsy? Laughter broke out among some of the cynics, and Professor George Michael avica said, hey, don't laugh so fast. I've been down to Dallas, I've studied Tippett, and I found out that Tippett bore such a close resemblance to President Kennedy that his friends on the Dallas Police Department used to rib him and call him Jack and JFK. And that silenced that audience. That was not a nice thing to be called in Dallas in 1963. You know what I mean? As far as ribbing is concerned, it was a big dig. Yeah. So that would have put a lot of uh, animals in Tippett. I feel sorry for Tippett. Tippett was a hero, man. Despite the fact that he killed President Kennedy, Tippett was a war hero. Uh, It broke my heart to realize, you know, I saw this movie called, um, I think it's called Battleground or Assault, and it's about the Battle of the Bulge. And I'm starting on listening to the Battle of the Bulge, and I realize they're talking about Tippett's uh, division. Tippett was with the Third Army, and he was one of the soldiers that fought in the Battle of the Bulge, and he was shell-shocked. He was never the same. His psychological profile, uh, given by the Dallas Police Department, said that he was very disturbing, that he was not connected to reality, that he was disassociated, that he didn't react normally to sounds and things that would ordinarily attract people's attentions, and that he exhibited edging of the cards when he was given these Rorschach tests, that he did something, folded the cards, and they said that this was not a very good sign. And yet they still accepted him. I guess Dallas out of compassion for him, being a veteran, and uh, he tried three times to pass the test to become a sergeant, but he could not pass the test. He got waylaid by Jack Ruby, and um, became a corrupt police officer. That's all I can tell you. Gene Hill, woman in the red uh, raincoat in the Zapruder film, told me there was nothing he wouldn't do. He beat his women. He was surly. He was nasty. He was mean. Listen, on the morning of the assassination, he said goodbye to his child and he told his wife that he wanted a divorce because he wanted to marry his girlfriend named Ruby. Ruby ruby
0: slippers take the land of Oz.
1: It is the land of Oz. And you know what? I said that to Professor George Michael Avica and he said, Man, you don't know how right you are. I said, What do you mean? He said, they got the idea from The Wizard of Oz, and I was talking about CBS being the all-seeing eye, and that when they had television, they were they were able to have the machinery that the Wizard of Oz had, the ability to mesmerize all the Munchkins and to create through smoke and mirrors a false reality. And he said to me, "You're absolutely right, but it goes deeper than that because we were talking about the heroin trade, and he said, "Don't you know about the yellow brick road?" I said yeah, in the wizard of oz. He says, "But you don't you don't know what the yellow brick road is." Do you? I said, "Well, no." He says, "Well, you don't know that in the 1930s, Chinese heroin was brought into the United States in yellow bricks. That's how it was smuggled into the United States. And the Roosevelt administration made a decision that they were going to keep the black population sedated and unable to really function as a voting block by getting them addicted to heroin. And so the Roosevelt administration decided to follow the yellow brick road and import heroin that would be imported, the profits would be split between the government and the mafia, and the black people would become enthralled and enslaved to it. And that's what Professor George Michael Avika Explain to me about American politics and the drug trade. Sure. And folks. the drug
0: trade Did the same thing with uh, the uh, Mexicans as well, too. Marijuana and the blacks, uh, the hippies, the counterculture movement, something that a lot of people really suspected or knew about for uh, quite some time. And then, yes, lo and behold, it comes to light. Papers uh, managed to make their way to the surface, and that's exactly what Nixon. And his administration had quietly, behind the scenes, been plotting. You know, they're conspiring against the American public. They do, that's how the state operates, is what it seems, frankly. They never stop conspiring. It's like George Bush talked about, uh, famously kind of let it slip. You know, we never stop thinking about ways to... Screw you over basically and fuck you up. Yeah.
1: You know, <laughs> well, you know, it's because Central Intelligence Agency is not a U.S. agency. It's not American. It's in the contract. They are German. That's why they're not called the United States Intelligence Agency because the paperclip scientists negotiated the contract. I have a copy of the contract. And I can tell you that two of the stipulations were that they had to operate on a black budget. That meant that the budget of this organization that Galen formed, the sure. CIA, was not, That's right. yeah. was not to appear in the congressional uh, budget records. The other stipulation was, and this is a quote, It is understood that we do not work for the Americans, that we are Germans and that our loyalty is first and foremost Germany. And furthermore, that if the interests of Germany and the United States should diverge in the future... That our first loyalty is to Germany. That's in that contract.
0: That's incredible. That- you know, and also we talked about this in just one of our more recent shows how with Paperclip and these German scientists and intelligentsia, spies and the like, many of them not only found their way, working their way into and joining up with NASA, but also they were instrumental in the founding, well, I'm sorry the more the evolution of the American Psychiatric Association am i correct You're
1: right. you you took the words out of my mouth before when we were talking about big pharma mafia and the chemical industry and the uh, military industrial complex i was going to say the psychiatric mafia before 1950 there were many schools of psychology and many schools of psy- american schools of psychiatry for treating the mentally ill and they were successful. Incredible varieties of them. But after the war, Freudianism became entrenched, first in New York, and then Anna Freud, Freud's daughter, came to the United States, and she started going and lobbying Congress and the Senate and state governments to disown American psychiatry. She said, oh, these American psychiatrists know nothing. Only Europeans know Psychiatry in the human mind, and citing Freud and Jung and um, uh, Thomas Saz and a, a bunch of others. And she got state governments and the United States government to outlaw other forms of psychiatry other than these Freudian based psychiatric shrinks. And that is uh, how America's mental illness expanded
0: it 's such a racket, obviously, with the way that they have things set up it 's just endless labeling more than anything you know totally how it is with uh, we hear about via labeling theory the diagnostical statistics manual. DSM have- uh, number five now, I think they're working on. Let me just ask you this quick question here, and we are trying to wrap things up. It seems like we're having a bit of a struggle doing that, but that's fine. Uh, I guess I'm I'm good to go here. I'm uh, just more worried about you than anything. But Freud, Sigmund Freud, did he not write in, I can't find the document or papers or the, the book that he issued, where he talked about he if he had his way in the end, everything that people did, would be labeled some kind of mental disease and that would they'd need to medicate or s- some solution, some therapy for it. Every single facet of human activity.
1: Yes, he wanted to control every aspect and that's what he did. He actually, he was a predator. He preyed on his clients and his patients. He manipulated men and women to give him vast sums of money. And he would manipulate them to marry each other and uh, just took control of their lives. He is also responsible for the cocaine epidemic in the United States it was he who introduced cocaine as as a uh, as a useful uh, drug or um, as a useful drug in psychotherapy he would coke up himself yeah. and he would coke up works for clients
0: me. Why not
1: and else? it spread from there and uh, it became the vogue that destroyed so many lives in well. the 70s don't,
0: do you not know, have you not speaking of which, followed the Dr. Feelgood, another uh, Jewish doctor,
1: Yeah, Dr. Jacobson.
0: Max Jacobson. Yeah, Bill Burns, has, yep. he did a great, uh, the, I got the book right here, Dr. Feelgood by Bill Burns and his uh, uh, Joel, no, there's a different co-author. Anyways, the two of them, yeah, they researched it quite extensively. What a mind blower. Have you read that book?
1: Uh, I haven't read the book but I know a lot about Dr. Jacobson and his concoctions. You know, President Kennedy wound up the same way Hitler wound up. They were being treated by doctors who were concocting really weird cocktails.
0: Yeah, yeah Dr. Um, feelgood Jewish you know, Dr. Feelgood doctors so uh
1: Well, that's the other thing, you know, as long as you broach the subject and we we're, we're exposing all these conspiracies. We've talked about the importation of the paperclip uh Nazis, the Nazi The German Nazi science, but there was another thing that we imported after World War II. We imported German science, and uh, we also imported Jewish medicine. And Jewish medicine brought a different ethic and a different morality to American medicine, and it changed the entire landscape of American medicine. No Hippocratic oath, for one thing.
0: Do no harm. Do no harm.
1: Yeah. Well, if you took the Hippocratic oath. In modern times, you couldn't prescribe abortifacient uh, medicine or abortifacient drugs, you know, drugs that induce abortion. You couldn't participate in assisted suicide and you couldn't engage in human experimentation as is so often done. So they are they don't take the Hippocratic Oath. That's one thing. You know, there's a book, if you really want to know what I'm talking about, there's a book about medicine about jewish medicine in a modern new york hospital it's called the house of god and it talks about how what doctors really think of americans and their patients and uh, that some of them think they're just one step up from an animal and they're just so dispassionate and disconnected from their patients that it's um, it's a charnel house. I, there's no way I would go to a hospital. I've seen too many of my friends go in for one thing and be killed with it for another. So oh, I just right. don't trust it. Yeah,
0: the leading cause, one of the leading causes of death in the West uh, seems to be these accidental hospital-related incidents where people needlessly are subjugated to uh, you know, surgery or various medical procedures that uh, end that? up, as you say, finding them in a body bag.
1: Yeah, well, how about the testing? The testing is an insult. The testing is a horrible procedure that often takes the will of the person, the will to live taken out of the person. And also the pain-for-profit industry to keep people out of pain. They don't want to cure you. They want to suppress your pain. And that's what leads to the opioid crisis and addiction to painkillers. And the human body is not designed to take such unnatural insults and abuse. So I will not go to a hospital. As I said, I've I've seen too many of my friends go in there for one thing and die from another. And there's a word that everybody ought to learn. It's called iatrogenic. Iatrogenic illness. I-A-T-R-O-genic. Iatrogenic illness. That means an illness caused by a doctor's mistake. And there's another movie that is being suppressed. If you can find it, see it. It's called Sublime. It's a brilliant film exposing this uh, nefarious pain for profit industry, uh, surgery for profit industry that uh, is still ongoing in the United States. I'm glad that President Trump has taken over the VA and is turning it inside out. And it is really horrible what all veterans, my friends, have gone through at the VA. Uh, They're used as guinea pigs. They're just absolutely used as guinea pigs, and there's no effort to heal or cure. It's been a dispensary for opiates, and those opiates have killed more veterans now, I believe, than even the wars that they fought.
0: Major uh, suicide epidemic among uh, vets, something which uh, it seems to have leveled out now from what I understand, and that mostly being because the Soldiers that were suffering from serious mental issues have all now, you know, by in large part off themselves or maybe had yeah. somebody else help them. And then it's simply ruled, uh, the official verdict is a suicide. We find that all too often almost everywhere around the world. Korea is no different where we have celebrities here that, uh, die of su you know, air quotes now suicide when really there's a, you know, mafia involvement and, all kinds of uh, dirty, undid handed mm. activities taking place. So, hey, look, uh, Robert! My God, what a rock on tour and, uh, and a speaker. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to speak to you. You're a very uh, good host and intelligent person. You make great comments, and you know you just crank me up. And, and I think that we are ping-ponging. When you get into a good thing, it's good ping-pong match. Sure. You know, that's right. Yeah, you you and I go back and forth, and I'm very happy to um, to make your acquaintance and to share ideas with you. And you with me.
0: It's been a long time. Our pleasure. We're quite honored to have you here, of course. So uh, it's been a long time, yeah, in the waiting here. So uh, typically, though, the way that we close uh, things off, and let's not forget, you do have a podcast, just to let people know, Freedom Slips Radio, along with UFOdigest.com.
1: Right. The show is on Sundays at 3. It's called The Morning Star Rapport. If I have a guest, we get into a rapport. And if I'm alone and I'm doing news, it's a report. So it's either the Morning Star report or the Morningstar rapport. And this weekend, we are going to discuss the tainted vaccines that have been released by the CDC and the murder of the CDC officer who exposed it. They found him floating in a, in a stream over there, and they're saying it was suicide. It wasn't suicide. Right. So uh, Bill Sardi, Bill Sardi, the president of Longevinex which is a wonderful product that uh, it makes your DNA younger and it uh, stops Alzheimer's. It's a wonderful product, Longevinix.com. Bill Sardi is the president. He will be on my show and we will be discussing the tainted flu vaccines that have been released now recently, but also the swine flu vaccine that compromised so many people's immune systems. I found out from a CIA doctor That the swine flu vaccine that killed so many people in the late 70s, of the ones that survived, it compromised their immune system. And apparently, that uh, compromised immune system was uh, congenital. And the children of the people who had the swine flu vaccine also suffer from compromised immune systems. It's a big story. So, third, uh, day of three.
0: They inherited their parents' disease, then, is what you're saying, because of this uh, toxic uh, the the vaccination, uh, the poisoning. That's just Mm -hmm. amazing. So it's incredible to think. Of course, the uh, the biological chemical weapons that do exist so much on a covert level, you know, that we never hear about in the mainstream, very rarely even in alternative media. But uh, the way that we uh, typically close things off is we allow our guests to choose a song from the jukebox. Let's not forget as well, we're going to work post-production on this, the back end of what we've recorded here via the Rogues Gallery, what is normally premium content, and we're going to have that available to the public simply because it's, on the whole, I'm sure, a lot uh, better sound quality overall, and listeners will be a lot more pleased to hear what it is that we've managed to... um, to discuss, Solid. yeah, to discuss and and uh, take a look at here over the course of now, nearly the past uh, two hours or so. But uh, yeah, so the way we usually close things off, I'm I'm assuming you've got the screen share in place there. I know that we've got it, uh, we've got it up here on our end. Can you see our jukebox that we have, uh, the folder that we have open here? Let me look. Or you can just, you know, what you can do. Well,
1: when you said that. The first song that came to my mind was Shine On Brightly by Proko Harum. There's a single on YouTube that you could share. Okay. I was I was thinking it would be great. That's a nice, that's a wonderful tradition.
0: Okay, I'll tell you what, we're going to head out of that uh, folder there and do it this way. So, let's see if we can uh, we could get it via YouTube like you say. Just checking the yeah. folders here quickly, not coming up. Uh, we got a little bit of America, a horse with no name, playing at the present moment, so Let's see, Procol Harem. Procol Harem. Yeah, and we'll shine We got we got whiter shade it's of pale, but we do not have <laughs> no.
1: Brightly. It's a little gloomy. Shine on Brightly is really up. It's also about um, the mysticism and the organ, and it is truly amazing.
0: I've never heard the song myself, so there's the full album right there, and there's it looks like the uh, the single. So the single, at the top. Well, we'll cue that up. You you I don't think can hear it from your end. We're streaming it out here. We got a little bit of America, the horse with no name. I think we're going to fade that out and get the jukebox that so we're streaming this out way. the Procol Harum tune that uh, Robert <laughs> has requested, Shine On Brightly. Thank you so much once again, Mr. <laughs> Morningstar. You are a force to be reckoned with, obviously, and a real truly as I stated earlier, class act a lot of guests, just especially of your age. You're as old as my father is right now, believe it or not. He's just had a 70th yeah. birthday as well, 1948, mm-hmm. February. Yeah. So, And ah. what a year that was. My God, that would be a show yeah. in itself with uh, things like uh, Israel and, and the nuclear testing, the Dead Sea mm-hmm. Scrolls, I believe, around that time as well, Alistair Crowley. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yes, we oh, could do Dead Sea Scrolls sometime. So. I, I've lectured on that, and I've read. I'm the only person I know I've ever heard of. That has actually read the Dead Sea Scrolls on the air. That's the trick. So, anyway, thank you very much and enjoy uh, Procol Harum. And uh, my advice to you and everybody who's listening is shine on brightly.
0: Adios and happy sailing. Good night,
1: Robert. Yeah. Good night. Thank you. Good night.
2: My Russian blue electric clocks. The it will not stop, and I can see no end in sight, and search in vain by candlelight, for some long.